Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I'm going to tell Montana about the Springford Thanksgiving Day murders. But before I get to that, Montana, what are we drinking? I'm going to assume it's a pick your poison because uh, you messaged me earlier. You pulled a me and said. I, I totally did. I was researching what I was doing. And uh, started researching something else. And this one's really gruesome. So I hope you're ready. So it's a pick your poison. I would recommend a stiff drink or a stout beer. Because what I ended up going with was a stout beer. So I have a, it's called, I've never tried it before, but it's pretty good. Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Milk Stout Imperial. So it's strong. Because you're going to need a strong drink. So that's my recommendation. What are you drinking, Montana? I pulled what was in the uh, the basement fridge. That's our beer fridge. Uh, it was a White Claw that one of my Wednesday night guys gave me. It'll do. It, it'll do. I will say that probably some of you dear listeners have heard of this story. I, oddly enough, have not. And when I came across it while I was doing research for a different one, um, I knew I had to cover this one. I'm just going to say it's really odd how much I feel like it wasn't covered considering how big of a case it was, but maybe that's just because of the time frame. Um, I wasn't into true crime at the time and this was a while ago. So, so normally Thanksgiving is a day that we think of spending time with family, eating a lot of food or visiting with some members of the family and quite possibly avoiding other members, at least in my case. I know I have at least a few that um, I have a tendency to try to avoid or at least avoid conversations with whenever we all get together. Same. And the holidays are frequently a time that we're all stressed too. And the stress can of the holidays can add to stressors that already exist between family members or friends or work, as is my case from today. <laughs> <laughs> And and this can all escalate in many different ways. We've seen it in a lot of different cases during the holidays. And there's no real mystery as to why there are a lot of blow-ups and, and drastically bad situations and during the holidays. But this one, this one kind of hit me a little hard when I did the research. And the case is brutal. So, like I said, it is a murder. It is during on Thanksgiving Day. And... If you're not mentally in the place to be able to listen to this or you just don't want to, I completely understand. You can skip over this episode. does not bother me. You can always come back or don't. It's it's completely up to you. It does, it's not going to hurt my feelings. It is brutal. So if you're still with me and you want to stay with me, buckle up because it's going to be a ride. I left out a lot of the details because I didn't want to make it any more gruesome than I had to. As per usual, I try not to go into too much detail. So Brent and Charlotte Springford were philanthropists and owners of the Laverne Pepsi Bottling Company in Montgomery, Alabama. There was a Pepsi Bottling Company in Alabama? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the town where my husband grew up, they, they were the original uh, bottling company for Pepsi. So you can go to like oh. a... There's a little like quaint like store that you can walk to in downtown and like get get your own bottled Pepsi and it's pretty cute. I don't know if it still exists. Of course, Kelsey can check that for us real quick. Um, as far as I know, this was a family business, so I I don't know that it's closed yet, um, but it might be. It sounds familiar, though. It does sound familiar and it, it may still be in, in existence, but not in the family. So, as such, they were considered wealthy by many and lived in a mansion in the Garden District of Montgomery, Alabama. It was in their home that they were found murdered on Friday, November 26, 2004. They appeared to have been beaten and stabbed with their throats cut. There was blood splatter on the ceiling and walls, which indicated they had been struck many times. The authorities found a large wooden stick and a large knife next to Brent's body. The wooden stick looked like it, it looked very much like a large axe handle, and the house had been ransacked. 
Upon investigation, a second-story window accessible by a trellis had been broken. They also discovered that while there was an alarm system, it actually didn't cover the upstairs, which was the window that had been broken. And from what a lot of people said, not many knew that the alarm system didn't cover the upstairs. Oh, uh, it looks like the bottling center is still there, but not sure if it's still owned by the Laverns. Maybe. Okay. Probably not. So, yeah, not. we don't know. I'm assuming they had taken it over because they were the Springfords and it was the Laverne Bo- Pepsi Bottling Company. Oh, okay. I'm assuming they had somehow taken it in or maybe that was just the name they went with. There is still family that's living, to be clear. So it's possible that they still own it. I don't know if they sold it at some point. All signs initially seemed to point to a burglary that escalated in the worst way, leaving the homeowners brutally murdered. But there was a problem. While the house was in complete disarray, nothing appeared to be missing, almost as if it was a staged robbery. Oh, The murders in and of themselves were quite brutal, which we all know points to the likelihood that the murderer knew the victims and had a lot of rage towards them. So what happened before this? Well, on Thanksgiving Day, they had an early dinner with their daughter, Robin, and Robin's husband in Birmingham. On the return home, Brent got a speeding ticket at 6.15 p.m., about an hour away from their home. So that gave investigators a timeline for when the the couple should have arrived at their home. Another key fact was that the car that Brent was driving when he got the ticket was a black Jaguar. And in case you're wondering, it was not at the house when they were found. Oh. So that was possibly a clue as well. So obviously the authorities were on the search for a car. And it was later found in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wait, Tulsa? Random, right? Yeah. We'll get to it. So when the investigators reached out to the family, they started with Robin. She's obviously the most recent person to see them, letting her know that her parents were found dead. According to Detective Michael Myrick of the Montgomery Police Department, Robin immediately responded with, I have an older brother. He lives in Colorado and he did this. Um, if your brother lives in Colorado, did he teleport? Right. Hold the phone. You, I get that maybe you had problems with your brother, but you immediately point the finger at your brother. Like, that's the only other possible person who could have done it. I would love to see the transcripts of how that conversation went. Just because if it was, if if they had asked her, do you know if anybody would want to harm, like, it would make sense that she would say something like that. But if she was just, like, out the gate, like, it was my brother. According to the article I read, it was like, that was almost a direct quote. Okay. So immediately pointing the finger at her brother. Calm down, ma'am. So who's her brother? Well, Brent Jr. had made the decision to move out west rather than work in the family business. At the time of the murders, he was living in Greenlee, Colorado with a single mother. And I say single mother and her children um, and her four children. I guess in some ways, technically, she was single because they never had an official wedding. But from what I read, they were basically common law because they had lived together. So technically, they were married. But I don't think they ever had like an actual ceremony okay carolyn scott and her four children had allegedly spent thanksgiving together with brent jr nearly 1400 miles away from his parents home investigators were unable to reach brent jr right away but did reach scout who they told to have brent jr reach out to them about an emergency involving his family in alabama so they didn't disclose exactly what happened while they spoke to her she confirmed that he had been with them for thanksgiving and would pass along a message The day after the murders, which was November 27th, Brent Jr. returned the call, telling them that he was home with Scout on Thanksgiving and further providing that he had gone hiking that day as well. Oddly enough, he made no reference to the family emergency that they had mentioned or asked why they had called him in the first place, which is a red flag. And you you can also drive from Montgomery to Colorado in 22 hours. So in less than a day. So it's possible. Thanks, Kelsey. (laughs) Alabama police are contacting you in Colorado right after Thanksgiving about a family emergency. And you don't even ask why. I mean, even if she hadn't even said anything about a family emergency and just said Alabama police want you to call them back and you return the call. You don't ask, hey, let's put some pieces together. I know I have family in Alabama. What's going on? Why are you calling me? Like, wouldn't you at least ask? He never even asked. He just was like. I have an alibi. 
like immediately right out the gate. I was with my family. I want to play devil's advocate on this a little bit. Uh, there are people in my family where if somebody called me and was like, hey, there's a family emergency, like you need to call the police department. I would wait a day and then call them and be like, yo, I've, I've been at this place the whole time. <laughs> so- well, technically, though, this wasn't even a day. It wasn't a day later because they weren't found until Friday. So this was... They were the murders were committed on Thursday. He called back the next day, so he probably called within hours of them calling. Okay. There just wasn't any clarification of the time frame of how long it was, but it was still the day after the murder. So it's all in the same day, from what I could understand. See, I wouldn't be asking uh, with those family members. I wouldn't be asking clarifying questions because the less I know, the better. Ah, fair. Don't let me know. <laughs> we we haunt those family members. Four days after the double homicide, the detectives flew to Colorado to interview Brent Jr. and the rest of the family. While Scout seemed upset about what happened to Brent Jr.'s family, when he arrived home and heard the news, he seemed to have almost no visible reaction at all, according to Detective Drakowski on one of the articles that I read. He did offer to help in any way he could and, of course, provided his alibi again because, yeah, you guys flew to Colorado to do an interview. I'm definitely going to tell you what I was doing that day. But the detectives weren't there to just interview the family. They also wanted to talk to people who knew the family as well because they're doing a thorough investigation and they flew all this way. So why not? I guess they figured may as well get a decent description from the neighbors. Like, how, how is this family? How do they relate to each other? Are there a lot of arguing? Do they get along? Just in general. I mean, it's decent detective work compared to what we've seen in other cases, let's be honest. But the neighbors described their relationship as odd, but that's really the only feedback that they gave. So I don't really know how to interpret that. I don't know that that was really giving them much, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the fact that my dad stands on his balcony when I leave town and says, I love you, bitch, bye. I think neighbors would also say that our relationship is odd. I go out of my way to make sure my neighbors don't feel like our relationship is on, <laughs> just in case. When the investigators dug a little deeper, they found out that the Springfords had purchased the house that the couple lived in as a wedding present. But the couple didn't cohabitate together. That's one hell of a wedding present. What is the, my big fat Greek wedding or something? Isn't that what they did? They bought them a house for their wedding? I don't remember. I haven't watched that movie since it came out, like, what, 20 years ago? Oh, let's not talk about how long ago it was. I, th- I think that's right. But anyway, I mean, it's definitely, you have to be a special family member to, to gift of a house, I have to say. It's just like, I'm going to be in debt for the next 30 years with a mortgage. And there are people who can buy their children houses. Like there is, this is so upsetting to me. I need to go lay down. At the same time, I mean, think of that. Let's devil's advocate this. If I have money and I can afford to buy a house for my child who's getting married and not have them subject to that debt. Wouldn't I want to do that? Yes. If I can afford to do that, is that not passing some wealth down? And they are known philanthropists. Let's let's clarify that. They gave a lot of money to the community and to charitable organizations. So they were very giving people in general. That's fine. So it makes sense that they would be very giving to their children. Just some of us didn't come from families that we got that benefit. I know. That's what's upsetting. Why couldn't my dad be rich? If anybody out there that is rich is listening to this, just pay my mortgage off. That's all I want in life. (laughs) What would that be like? Right? Every time I have a conversation with um, a, a person preparing for retirement, and they're like, I'm two years away from paying off my mortgage. I'm like congratulations i want to pat you on the back so much right now (laughs) like that's huge anyway shortly after the interview brent jr checked himself into a mental health facility in colorado oh well that's odd right is our boy okay any idea why he might have done that want to throw a few ideas out i'm gonna say he's a sex addict that's what you're going with uh either a sex addict or an insomniac yeah, I'm going to go with that. Something something that has nothing to do with any of this. With the diagnosis, the diagnosis, like I was wondering about 
reason behind it. But okay, this may not have been the reason, but in a crazy twist in Colorado, at the very least, mental health law prohibited detectives from further interviews with Brent Jr. while he was staying there. Okay, so it was like a the lawyer was like, oh, you know what? He was he did not have a lawyer at this time. Oh, okay. That he had Google. <laughs> Maybe I mean Google was available at this point. <laughs> how good it was! I mean, this was back in what 2004. Is that what I said? Yeah, yeah, 2004. I don't know how good it was, but it was definitely available. So it may not have been why he did it, but it's an interesting idea that that was kind of a side of side. I, I thought you were gonna go with something like, oh, he likes to eat peanut butter out of other people's socks or something like something just off the wall (laughs) okay and just two days after he was admitted he reached out to a montgomery publication to give his side and took the opportunity to say that he was innocent and couldn't believe the police would consider him a suspect sir calm down according to how is he doing this from this facility by the way i also read in a different publication or a different article that they found out that he was doing that and it wasn't helping his case and so they took his privileges away and named only specific places and people that he could call what's crazy to. to me is that i was in a facility when in 2005 at the same time you couldn't just like you couldn't just like call people like, there was a list you had to give. I'm going to clarify. He was an adult, and he checked himself. Okay, well, I was, yeah, I was a child. So that probably gives him a little bit more leeway up to a point. And then they were like, hey, so you keep doing this, because he, he didn't just do it one time. And so they finally took that privilege away and said, you can only call this list of people at some point. But initially, he he was able to call. I mean, I feel like they have to approve who you call because you're using their phone. But neither here nor there. I'm here for my mental health. Let me call the newspaper. Go for it, sir. Please go for it. So according to WKA.com, here's an excerpt of the call. (laughs) Heard that detectives Myrick and Davis suspect me for the murder of my parents, said Springfield or Springford Jr., on the phone call he made to their station. I've heard they're trying to build a case against me, and I don't know what this is about. I cannot believe all of this is happening. Please help as I find out more information that I need to answer. I will call the media and I will let them know I am not hiding or avoiding anything. End quote. Sir, you're you're in a hospital. Nothing wrong with going to the public. I mean, let's be honest. There's there sometimes that's the only way that somebody can be heard if they're being harassed or being suppressed like we've heard plenty of cases where there is somebody who isn't guilty and they're being harassed and that's the only way that they can get their version out so nothing wrong with going to the public when it comes down to it however I've also never heard of the case of when you do that it makes you seem less guilty it's one thing to like have a statement that you give to the media and especially if you've like talked to a lawyer a lot of the a lot of people who are wrongly being accused or are wrong like wrongful suspects let's be real we've had plenty of them will get lawyers even if they're like public defenders and the public defenders will be like all right you need to release a statement here's what you should say or along these lines still unrepresented by the way this guy is being rogue as fuck. Not only is he being rogue, he was like, you know what? We'll lift this up a bit. I'm mentally unstable. Let's make a public statement that can be held against me. Yeah. By me calling a radio station or a newspaper. I think this was a newspaper station. but From hospital. And that's probably recorded. It, it might be protected to some extent, but not really. Because no. it's to a newspaper station. <laughs> Place, so you call it a newspaper <laughs> like you're, you're like you're not helping yourself in this situation please by all means call a lawyer he put himself in the best situation into a hospital where he didn't have to talk to anybody anything he, he could actually say should be like covered under like HIPAA laws but the second that he called out and if they were like can I record this can I report on this and he didn't say no I know too late Sorry, my guy. In any case. And and at this point, by the way, he had an alibi. They were just interviewing him and establishing that alibi and testing it. That was my other thing. They never said he was an actual suspect, right? 
No, they they can't. They flew in and interviewed him, but I feel like that would be standard. Like your next of kin, we need your statement. It's that that's all. Also, your sister kind of blamed you for it, so we were looking a little harder. But ultimately, you live in Colorado and you were with your family, so it's kind of hard for us to put you there. Yeah, and she lives way closer. You're jumping in like really deep right now and you're making it seem sus. So we're going to look a little harder. And in any case, the next step was for the detectives to find out if his alibi checked out. Because if he was really in Colorado, there's no way he could have committed the murders. Though I'm sure they checked all of his records for the possibility of hiring somebody to do it as well. Sure. So first they checked out to see if it would have even been possible for him to leave Colorado, make it to Alabama in time to murder his parents, then return to Colorado as if nothing out of the norm had happened. We've already established it takes 22 hours to get from Colorado to Alabama, but that's a straight shot. And that's if he drove. And his wife is providing an alibi. So we have to assume he didn't just drive a car straight there. So they called up Scout again, who told them, actually... She had taken Brent Jr. to the bus station on Monday, November 22nd, so he could visit a friend. So, Monday. He, he took a Greyhound. Basically. This raised suspicion, if for no other reason, then he didn't think to mention it up to this point. But also, did he get back home before Thanksgiving? So, they combed the video footage of the bus station and finally located that he had boarded a bus headed for Denver. And after more research, found that he had used the name Terry Chance... And from Denver, he traveled to Nashville and then to Montgomery. And now his alibi is no good. And this one said Monday, by the way. Another article said that this was actually like Tuesday or Wednesday. So it's a little bit fuzzy on what part of the week, but it was definitely before Thanksgiving. Terry Chance is a terrible right? name to go I under. I thought that was interesting. Like, if I'm, if I'm going to go under like a name... That is not my own name. I'm going to look up the most popular names that were given 25 to 30 years ago. I mean, heck, go with John Smith. Well, don't, you don't want to do John Smith because it's like. I'm yeah. just saying in general, I'm not telling people how to commit murder. All right. I'm not, I'm not telling but you how to do it. Like, <laughs> Chance, come on. Two first names, get out of here. Well, in any case, this was enough for them to get an arrest warrant. Wait, that was? That was, I mean, that was enough. The alibi he provided fell apart and they needed more information and they couldn't interview him while he was in the facility. They got an arrest warrant and they were able to go to the facility where he was staying, arrested him there and immediately took him to the station. Wait, I'm surprised they can arrest people who are in facilities. There was enough suspicion here for them to warrant that. I don't think that's always necessarily the case. It might be like a state by This was a guy that checked himself in as soon as he got interviewed. Oh, okay. His alibi so we're a little sus about we're we're a little bit suspicious about what's going on. I mean, I was sus to begin with, but I was just like, yeah, I didn't realize you could do that. There's probably reasons. Like I said, I, th- I think it was more like this is suspicious that you checked in right after you got interviewed, and now you don't have an alibi. So it kind of seems like you're evading interviewing the police no, for true. reasons yeah. that are not involved with mental health. And more involved with your guilty and are trying to avoid interview. <laughs> I mean, I would just get a cabin in the woods where nobody lives, but that's my thing. That didn't work for, well, I mean, I guess it worked for a while for the one case that I covered for the bomber, the Centennial bomber. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he eventually got caught. So they discovered that Brent Jr. had a long history of mental health issues and illness over the years, and his parents had supported him financially his whole life, which is not a surprise. According to Robin, not only did they purchase his home, they also purchased two of his cars and paid his credit card debt, in addition to paying him a monthly allowance of $800 to $900. In early 2000s, 800 to yeah. $900 with no mortgage and no car note? Yeah, and no credit card debt, because they paid that too. What the heck are you spending your money on, sir? What was he spending his money on? That was not clear, and nor was it made clear. But despite this, their relationship had soured, and they weren't on good terms with him, and had eventually become estranged, and thus reduced the support that they were offering him. According to Brent Jr., his father had threatened to sell the house they purchased for him and his family. 
Brent claimed he had thought if he went back home and surprised them, he could convince them to continue supporting him and prevent them from severing their ties completely. No, no, no. This isn't a surprise, sir. You went to a bus stop. You made stops out of the way. Well, he was surprising you them. a different name. Do your parents have access to the bus registry? Like, no. This isn't... They're probably not watching out for the bus registry. Yeah, no. Register this is not what this is, and we all know it. The detectives also learned that Brent Jr. was informed by his parents that they were cutting him out of their will. And this had occurred, had occurred not long before the murders. And now we have motive. Yeah. So, after who knows how long uh, being interviewed by the police, he eventually confessed to the crimes. He explained that he had been struggling financially. And I'm assuming Scout wasn't willing to fully support him like his parents had. Because he said when he told Scout, she drove him to the bus station so that he could go home and talk to his parents. Shortly after arriving at his parents' home, he got a pick handle from the tool shed and a kitchen knife. According to Brent Jr., he did talk to them first, but eventually they began to fight and he had no choice but to kill them. That's that's a bullshit thing because Scout knew exactly what he was going to do. We'll get to that. According to his confession later, an additional confession, by the way, he also said that when his parents returned and found he had broken into the house, so in this confession, he had broken the window and broken into the house on the top floor because he knew the alarm system didn't work up there. An argument broke out, obviously, and he attacked. Ultimately, according to forensic evidence, however, the attack would have had to have been an ambush. The prosecution said that the killings would have had to have been planned due to the fact that Springford had bought a mask and gloves before even arriving at his parents' house. There were also reports, not to get into too much detail, but that the parents were originally bludgeoned with the handle. And when they were not dead, tried to get away by running upstairs. And that was when he attacked them with the knife. And that's where they died. So it wasn't a case of, oops, that happened. It was a case of he had an intention. Yeah, he, he had a goal in mind. And the fact that you crawl first off, how on, how on earth do you even present this as like a, oh no, like I was trying to surprise him. You went to a bus stop. You, you had your partner drop you off at a bus stop. You used a different name. You went to different cities to try and cover your tracks. You showed up and you you crawled through an attic window. Well, not necessarily attic. It was a second floor. Second floor, knowing that the alarm system wouldn't go off. Like, that's why you did it. Like, intentionally went through there. And you want us to but believe. But you weren't trying to surprise them. You were, you, well, you were trying to surprise them. With a visit. to have a conversation with them. By breaking into their house. Because you found you, your key didn't work. Yeah. That's a really big surprise. Don't surprise me like that. You are going to find a gun in your face. Don't do that. Yeah. Anyway. He then left in his father's car to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Where he dumped it and then took a bus back to Colorado. So now we've come all the way around. That's why they found the car. And that's original. That's kind of how they also tied it back. Because... Obviously, they can just look at the cameras, I'm sure. If he, he probably didn't dump that car like far away. He probably parked it at the bus station and walked in. Less than half a mile, I'm willing to bed. <laughs> I didn't see anything specifying, but that's my guess. So, because of the nature of the attack and the murders, the DA decided to seek the death penalty in this case because we know in Alabama, capital murder is the only charge that carries the death penalty. I mean, you have Yellow Mama there for a reason. Apparently. Not at that time. Yellow Mama wasn't really used much. It was, at that point, it, would it not have already been lethal injection? It might have been. Early 2000s? In Alabama? I don't know. Yes. I was we're there. behind in all the ways. Thank God for Tennessee. <laughs> <I know>. Because <laughs> they were, there were obviously many discussions between both parties and plea deals, and eventually they were able to come to an agreement for a plea. I will say that I did read from other articles that the district attorney was seeking the death penalty, but the defense team was trying to plea for insanity to avoid the death penalty. And they were trying to, because you have to get the acceptance of the person who is actually being tried 
and they couldn't get him to accept anything. And then they finally got a plea deal and they were like, you have to move your plea from insanity to guilty and accept this plea. And he wasn't willing to do that. So what he ended, they ended up having to do is get Scout involved, send her the plea so that she could then respond and tell him, you need to take this deal because if you don't, you're going to have to go to, you're going to have to go to court and you might be found guilty and have the death penalty. So it was a lot of going back and forth and it was very hard to get him to agree to a plea deal. Well, of of course. And Kelsey said, Kelsey said all 59 persons executed during, during 2004 were men. 39 were white, three of whom were Hispanic, 19 were black, one was Asian. 58 were given, oh, okay, so I was right. 58 were given lethal injection and one was, was electrocuted. electrocuted. So they were phasing it out at that point. I yeah. thought they were at that point. It's still not humane. I don't care how you do it, but whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, death penalty is not humane. Like, please just. But we've sign. already covered that, so we don't yeah. go into it. At the end of the day, if he accepts a plea deal, it's going to take away, like, they, I'm assuming they probably hadn't changed the wheel. to appeal. Yeah. He has appeal process. He also has, like, he, he's able to receive the benefits of their death mm-hmm. at that point. So if he takes a plea deal, he's able to receive life insurance, any type of, like. He, not in the case of murder. He would be negated. So all of it would have gone to his sister. Because from what I could see, it was 50-50. So if he accepts a plea for the murder of his parents, then his sister would get everything. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If he if he accepted that, he wouldn't get any of that. Right. right. He would negate any claim to any of their wealth. So that's, that's why he, in my mind, that's why he wouldn't do it. Because in his mind, he's probably like, oh, I can just get a lawyer who can like get me off of this. like, And then I'll have money. This is going to be an interesting case when we get to the end. Okay. Great. So, in 2008, Brent Springford Jr. was convicted of capital murder. 2008. It took four years. Was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He was initially sent to Kilby, Kilby Correctional Facility. Remember that place that I covered. For a 90-day evaluation. Defense attorneys said that Brent Jr. was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and asked for him to be transferred to Donaldson Prison to serve the remainder of his sentence because it has a special unit for the mentally ill. This was permitted and he was transferred. That being said, Donaldson is the home of the state's most violent and mentally unstable patients. Brent Jr. wrote a letter to his lawyers asking if he could be placed in a cell block with all white males over 60 as he thought this would be a placid environment and I guess would help him and at some point there was a quote from another article that I read from an author that I'll mention in just a minute where he said it was like he just didn't understand that you are in prison sir and you don't get to ask where you get to be placed you committed a crime and you are now having to face the consequences of such you don't get to say where you stay not just that. Um, I don't know. So, by the way, just to reference this, by the way, because I haven't said it, he's like 32 at this point. So he's still fairly young. So but he's, he's also been sheltered his entire life. He's uh, Kelsey's age. My age. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a little bit older. I say, you're welcome. Fairly young. I feel old. So thank you for that. <laughs> no, I, I still feel old. Um, I do the groan when I stand up. I'm old. My whole thing is, like, the fact that he asked for, like, 60-plus-year-old men to be on his cell block leads me to believe that he's never been around 60-plus-year-old <laughs> men. Uh, because true. I have. They're not any better. <laughs> no, they're not. They don't get better with age. Let's just they clarify don't. that. <laughs> so, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, fortunately, depends on how you look at it. We'll see at the end. Just five years later, in 2013, he complained of intense pain and was taken to the prison infirmary and eventually transferred to the hospital where he died. Of what? Another account said he was found unresponsive in his cell, which, honestly, based on what I've read about prisons, I have a tendency to believe that was the case. But in any case, it was unexpected as there was no indication of illness before he complained about the pain. 
an autopsy was performed and it was discovered that he died of an overdosing of Tylenol. What? They can't get what? Yeah. How did he get it? How? I couldn't find anything that said how he got enough Tylenol to overdose. You can buy Tylenol in 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 prison. Isn't yes, but surely it's a controlled amount, and surely they keep up with that. My my assumption is that I would hope so, especially if he's in a mental health area of the prison, which means in theory he would be a higher risk for suicide. Yeah, I would assume you would just get that from like the the hospital wing of that and they would regulate it. You would hope. But in any case, that was what was deemed the cause of his death. And at the time of his death, he was 37. Oh, shit. According to the Denver Post, the district attorney said Springford's sister always felt he would have killed her if she had returned to Montgomery with her parents nearly nine years ago. Brooks said she hopes the death brings her peace because she always thought about what if he escapes from prison. What? Which is really sad. She was worried about if he ever got out, what he would do to her because she was a part of the family. Oh, okay. Now that we've said that part of the story, we're not done. Let's discuss another side of the story, shall we? Okay. It's the one I mentioned to you before. Okay. There were some articles that hinted that Scout took advantage of Springford's financial support from his family and his mental illness. Mark Pinsky wrote a book that I didn't have time to read before I covered this case because I didn't know about it. And he found out a little bit more about their relationship, leading him to believe that that's exactly what she did. And before you go on, Mark Pinsky is actually the one who wrote the book on um, Matter on the Mountain, mm-hmm. Brenda Morgan. Yeah, as soon as I saw that name, I was like, Peg going. Yeah, it was. I feel like she probably mentioned this to me. And uh, I forgot. And Kelsey says, you can buy basic painkillers off commissionary or commissary. Commissary. There's a lot of generic branded stuff, medical medical rarely will give out such things for free they'll write you a piece of paper giving you permission to shop that day to buy medicine i would think there would be some kind of accountability though for the medicine like they're responsible for making sure these people don't kill themselves so i would hope that they kept up with that you just buy however much you want and then oops you died from an overdose because we let you have it well like that's that's liability at best well, it's not, though. The prison system is just a its a form of slavery that has just been rebranded. Let's be real here. Well, I mean, yes, but no. Because think about it. He came from a wealthy family. And even though they were relieved he was there, that's opening yourself up to a lot of liability for allowing him to have enough to die of an overdose. Yeah. Because that's they, clearly your responsibility. But the living member was afraid he would get out. Well, and two, you don't know what he was getting from other people, too. Yeah. So I guess there's there's a will, there's a way. But it just seems, it seems like there's a lack of responsibility there in any case. It's also like a terrible way to die. Like, Yeah, it had to be severely painful. I've heard uh, from what I've seen or uh, what I've read, an overdose on Tylenol is not pleasant. And it takes a while. Yeah, it's pretty awful. In any case, Mark Pinsky wrote a book that I didn't have time to read. That went into more in depth about their relationship, which made him believe that she did take advantage of him. He described her as a shaman. I couldn't see. Some said um, kind of led to her being indigenous, but some didn't. So I don't really know the straightforward, but she was a, a, a kind of medicine doctor or her list or a holistic healer in that area. So a lot of people did go to her for that type of healing, but she was in no way, shape, or form licensed to actually perform any type of medicinal healing well, of any kind. Let's clarify. There are plenty of white women who say that they are indigenous and are not and take on these. True. Especially in the West, to be perfectly clear. Herbal, all natural, like healing. Holistic. Yeah. That is not what indigenous people say is beneficial to people she could be though to be clear i really couldn't find anything one way or the other that's just how mark pinsky described her he described her that way and that brent jr was taken in 
due to his mental illness, which also allowed her to manipulate him into committing the murders. Apparently, an investigation was initiated on Scout, and another body was found on her property, belonging to a man who had named her as a beneficiary on two separate life insurance policies, even though he had a daughter. Okay, yeah, she put him up to this. Wow, you have swung wide on this case. <laughs> yeah. Beginning until now. I thought you might enjoy this little um, she put little bit of this. information. His book didn't come out, by the way, until like last year, I think. So a lot of this information has not been released until recently. Well, I mean, Mark Pinsky is probably one of the one of my I, I don't want to say like favorite true crime authors, but like one of the more reliable ones that I've read. Investigative reporters. Yeah, where he has like he has poured his entire life into the Morgan case, but he never gave his actual opinion into it. He just gave you all of the interviews, everything that he did, and you can, like, deduce what you want from it. And I think that's what makes, I think that's what makes a better, like, investigative journalist at the end of the day. I agree. And I'll buy this book and read it, and I may give, like, an update after I read it about what I think or what I read and what I came what conclusions I came to. But at this point, I haven't read it yet. I just saw a couple of articles about some of the things that he covered, which definitely shed some questions on the whole case and made me question what was presented. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate. What was presented was what they knew. Yeah. A lot of this stuff came to light after what happened, but it does explain blame a lot of holes i feel like there were well it doesn't change the fact that he killed his parents exactly and i'll get to that but considering i haven't ever heard of this case let alone heard a part of it i'm sure that the book will be an eye-opener unfortunately this will be the first this would not be the first time a mentally ill person was taken advantage of by someone willing to do such a thing and in this case he was a wealthy he was from a wealthy family so there's a huge motive there, which doesn't always exist. And and it's very unfortunate and it breaks my heart if that's the case, because that's the epitome of the bottom of the barrel for a person. To take advantage of somebody who's mentally ill, who comes from a wealthy family just to get their money, there's just, that's really low, in my opinion. If that's what happened, I won't say it did. That being said, none of this has been proven, nor has even been charged as far as I could find. It's just conjecture. However, I couldn't move forward without at least mentioning the things that he came across because it's it shed some light on some things that were not mentioned on any of the articles that I read. Specifically, there was an interesting part um, that Pinsky probably goes over more in more detail in his book, but I found it in an article on boulderweekly.com. Quote, his story in various versions was that, and his being juniors. Okay. His story in various versions was that a demonic spirit named Akasha appeared to him several weeks before the murders and was ordering him what to do, Pinsky says. The name Akasha has some antecedents in Sanskrit, which is the language of Hinduism, which is it, which where it is defined as a basic element akin to fire, earth and water. But one can also find reference to Akasha in contemporary pop culture. Anne Rice's novel, The Queen of the Damned, features a vampiric creature named Akasha, which is what I knew. Which was highly popular in the early 2000s, yeah. It seems unlikely, given Brent's propensity for spirituality and Eastern philosophy, that his version of Akasha would have come from such a shallow place, but his account of how he met Akasha was rather earthly. During an interview with Mary, and I'm sorry if I say this wrong, Cotton Stitt, a paralegal in Boulder County Public Defender's Office, Brent claimed to have met a man at Whole Foods in Boulder who called himself Akasha. Brent was clear that the meeting made him feel good. Indeed, it made him feel blessed. Eventually, it was Akasha who told Brent, that something good would come from visiting his parents. And it was also Akasha who said this trip should be made in secret by bus. All I want to say is anything that has ever happened to me spiritually has happened in a Whole Foods. Makes sense. 
Makes total sense. Where else would he come from? Of course. Quote, God only knows where Brent got the name Akasha, but that was his story, Penske says. Somebody made him do it, and in his story, it was a malevolent spirit. Others suspected a more earthly intervention, end quote. Weed? Uh, no, his wife. Oh. Now that we know that he was officially diagnosed as schizophrenic, this actually makes a lot of sense. Prior to the trial, his defense attorneys found out that the facility he had stayed at for a very short period of time had actually diagnosed him as bipolar, which is often a misdiagnosis of schizophrenia as well as other disorders because bipolar is kind of the obvious choice. It takes a little bit more time for you to specify, like, specifically these these minute details that make you see it's a different uh, a, a different option, I guess. There seems to be enough evidence to prove he was not mentally sound at any point, let alone when the crimes took place. Regardless of whether he was guided by an imaginary person or whether it was by his common law wife, he did commit the murders. And I don't think anybody can honestly say they think he was sane when the murders were committed. I personally wouldn't have been able to sentence him to death knowing what I know, the little bit that it is. I don't know what, what would have been revealed in a court case had he gone to court. But, you know, I wouldn't have sent him to death row, but I don't know, you know, I don't know how comfortable I would have been with either sending him to death or death row or uh, not death row, um, a life sentence without parole. I definitely think he should have been in a mental health facility for the rest of his life. But we know that if you're found guilty by reason of insanity, once you're cured, you're free. And I don't think that's a good solution either, as many schizophrenic patients tend to not take their meds consistently once they're out of a medical facility. And the consequences of him not taking his meds is he commits murder. Let's clarify that in the United States. People in other countries have better support systems where when you're when you've committed something like this under an episode, they can be put into a facility till they can get discharged but they have the support system just to clarify that okay and the only thing i'm thinking of is that that guy in um canada that ate that dude's face okay on the bus yeah and then he got out and nobody knows what happened to him after that because his identity was changed and nobody knows what happened to him after that as far as we know we do realize that. he's you know Sure, he probably had all the support he needed. Whether he's still taking his meds and not killing people and eating their faces, I have no idea because I don't know what his name is. But Canada has a better support system than America does. I mean, medical health, too. They're also completely clear of any kind of criminal misconduct in their past, and they can just move on with a different name. So I have no idea how good they are at keeping track of those people, to be fair. Fair enough. I'm I'm just like that's the only that, thing. That I'm... is a case that has worried me I mean, ever since I heard it. It. It's, it it can be scary, but at the same time I think like people I do ideally I want people who have mental health issues and disorders to get the treatment that they need. But the the truth of the matter is a lot of the people with the most severe mental illnesses, we can get them to the place of getting them stabilized, but that is it. We can't force them to continue to take the medication that they need in order to stay in the place where they are able to control themselves. There's just not, without taking their human right to free will, we cannot force them to take medication. So if we release them, we are then saying, if you do something again, that is on us because we have let you go. But government's not going to say that. But again, if you keep them imprisoned, it's it's actual imprisonment at that point. Exactly. Against so it's will. like there's there's no right answer here because we we do condemn the present prison system for letting people out when they've done something wrong because they have good behavior in prison. And we say, "Well, that's not fair because they end up going and committing worse crimes later. They should have kept them in there." But at the same time when it's a mental health situation, we can get them to a level place and we can get them the treatment they need. But if they don't continue that treatment, okay, it is on them. But also you've now sacrificed however many lives one way or another, whether it's death or whether it's something else. That's on us too, because we let them go because they were at a level place and they chose not to continue to take their medicine. So it's kind of like that 
damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, you can't win because I don't want to keep them in prison if they don't need to be. But at the same time, how do you know that they're going to continue with the treatment that they need? Well, I think I think in like my head, we just need like better mental health support and more funding going 100%. into that and less money going into the prison system. Because at the end of the day, the amount of people that are in the prison system don't like there is a high percentage of people who are in the prison system that don't need to be in there. Well, and I wonder, too, because the facility he checked himself into diagnosed him with bipolar, which tells me he was never diagnosed with anything up to that point. So his parents contributing to his debt up to that point tells me he never actually went to a person or facility that could accurately diagnose him up to that point. He knew he had it. He knew he had something going on because he jumped at the first option to go into a mental facility. But I don't think he really knew what was going on. And I don't think they did either until he got to prison and he had a 90 day evaluation and they were able to diagnose him with schizophrenia, which means he was 30 two well let's see it was 40 four years later so he was like 33 30 or 35 36 before he was diagnosed schizophrenia starts showing up in your early 20s typically well i mean as somebody who who was diagnosed late in their 30s with a long-term like mental disorder specific disorder but yeah that but it affects my everyday life it's just like you can't expect people look at things like that and they just think oh they're like eccentric or like oh they're overly depressed or oh they have mood swings and like it's just people will make excuses for other people's behaviors before they recognize that it is an actual problem and I think and also a person that deals with any kind of issue like that to you it's normal because that's what you've dealt with your entire life oh yeah I did not realize I had generalized anxiety until I was in my mid-30s and I like went to my therapist I was like dude this is a revelation I'm gonna drop a bomb on you but I think I have generalized anxiety and my therapist literally turned to me and goes oh I I thought you knew that already. And I just sat there like, oh, ah, yeah. Well, how long have you known? Because <laughs> I didn't. I thought it was normal. It, you mean it's not normal for people to freak out every time there's something dirty and they have to immediately clean it or having to have everything in neat piles because they can't have it like papers cannot be in neat piles. They have to be in neat piles. I didn't realize that wasn't normal. I just thought I was, quote, perfectionistic. No, 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 no. That's generalized anxiety. That's how I deal with it. So you live your day-to-day life and you figure out ways, a lot of us, I think, that are around our, our age bracket, I think. We learn to kind of just deal with it and make adjustments because they didn't have a name for what we were going through. And we don't know that that's not normal until TikTok came around and they were like, oh, hey, by the way, I go through that too. And hey, it's not normal. It's actually this. And you're like, oh, there's a name for it. And I'm not crazy. Other people have it. I just maybe need to calm down. I think mine was more you telling me I wish you would get tested for ADHD. Uh, that's that's definitely how that went uh no but i didn't realize how nice it was when you were medicated until you were medicated and i was like oh this is what it's like i know i'm adjusting for you this whole time um i I, i'm just saying i think that us as a society we're we're getting better at recognizing those things but as a person if you've lived with it your entire life you don't realize there's anything wrong no you because don't. that's just how you've lived your entire life and that's not the fault of the person who has the disorder and especially as no. if that person has had this disorder and their family has enabled them to live within mm-hmm. that disorder without getting treatment can you like 100% like fault them on their actions like yes killing is bad Shouldn't have done that. That's fucking terrible. I think we're all on the same page on that one. Fault him for doing that. But at the end of the day, like, 
what were your actions to enable that and not get them the help that you obviously saw because you had to buy them a house. You had to buy them two car notes. You had to like give them an allowance because you saw that there was a deficiency within their mental capabilities. Well, and I wonder if that's where they were going with that tough love idea of, all right, we've we've enabled you for so long, but they didn't know that. That was 2004. That was when I graduated. Like, yeah, it was 20 I can tell years you right ago. My parents had no ago. idea. But I feel like, shut up. I feel like that was their response. Like, okay, we've we've enabled you for 30 plus years and we're not getting anywhere. So maybe if we take away that support, you'll grow up and you'll mature and you'll start to realize what responsibility means. And I don't think they really understood the underlying issue. But I do feel like his wife had ideas oh, she of what definitely was going knew. on because she was there day to day. Because like I said, schizophrenia has a tendency to really show itself in the later teens to early 20 years. So she witnessed it more so probably than his parents did because she would lived in it. And so she knew what she had. And I do think that that gave her the capability of manipulating that if that is what she wanted to do, considering that a body was found and blah, blah, blah. I feel like that probably was very likely. And statistically, people with schizophrenia disorder, the whole that whole like spectrum of disorder, they're more likely to be harmed or to be the portion of harm instead of to harm other people. Which is why I feel like he was pushed yes. in some way, form or fashion to this. And obviously he wasn't happy and he wasn't treated well because he just did not even want to live, which this case hits close to home. And I won't go into details, but it hits close to home because I have a family member that suffered from this. And he did take his own life because he just couldn't deal with the disorder. They could not get his medication right. He could not deal with it anymore. And he decided that it was just better to not have to deal with it. Yeah. And this is a, to be clear, this is a severe disorder and it can, it can really harm the people that suffer from it. Can they be dangerous? Yes. Are they more likely to be harmed by others? Yes. Yes, Because they're, they're more likely to be taken advantage of. And do they deserve our sympathy and love and empathy? Absolutely. Because it is not their fault. No, it's To be clear, it's not their fault. Whether they committed the murders, yeah. He totally killed his parents. Is he guilty? Yes. Is it his fault? Yes. However, I have no idea what was going through his head when that happened. And he should have had the support mentally that he needed. And he didn't have it. Yeah. And there's nobody to blame, to be clear, outside of his wife. Yeah. Outside of his wife or his partner. Because she knew what was going. She knew what was going on. She knew. Let's be clear. She should have done something. But outside of his wife, he didn't. I don't think he was in his right mind, to be perfectly honest. If it were me on that jury, if it was taken to court, I would have said, nope, it's insanity. He needs to go to a facility. Yeah, I I agree. But after everything that you've said, like if you had just given me him checking himself into a facility and what you gave me there, I would have said, nah. But what you've said since then, like, yes, obviously, of course. He's not. I feel like he could be well. But he wasn't. And he had a person who was a person of trust for him who took advantage of that and used it. And maybe even encouraged Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So. Well, good job. This was terrible. (laughs) That made you think. I hate it. Well, it's mental, it's mental health and, and the way that it can be abused. So it was a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah. And as we enter into sad season or, uh, what is the, what's the term that they call for, um, people going into like the winter months who are looking for a partner? Is it like cuddle? It's not cuddle season. It's. What? This is new information to me. It's like people who who go into like the winter months to get a partner, but they break up with the partner before February because they only want somebody during the winter months as like a. I feel like there was a movie made about this. There's a term for it. It's cupping season. 
That's what it is. As we enter cupping season, I hope that this terrible story makes you cuddle up to your partner more tonight. Or not. I don't know. Sure. He might not want to cuddle up to me after this story. <laughs> Just to be perfectly clear. Happy Thanksgiving, I guess. I would bring you a Thanksgiving murder. Oh, we have a good we'll one next week. Things, so. This was my only opportunity. So you're that. Well, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Reaper Tales Podcast. Email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, you know, whatever listening platform you listen on. Uh, bonus points if you do it on platforms you don't use. And written reviews get extra bonus points. So if we see a written review, you know what? If you if you write a written review from today, from the day that this goes out, I'll give you a Bam. shout out on the next episode. Love you, Minnie. Bye. The Reaper will come for us all.